Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, privilege of worship, and we pray now that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you take the Word of God and make application to our lives as only you can. So come, Lord Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. I trust that this has been um, a, a good Christmas season for you. I just saw children in the hallways celebrating some twins, twin boys. They're talking to some twin boys, and they had a great Christmas. And on top of that, they lost, both lost teeth. Um, and so the tooth fairy came last night, and I said, well, how much did they? So they the tooth fairy left $2 for both of them. And I said, I never got more than a quarter. Um, so the tooth fairy wasn't very good to me. Um, but it's, it is a, a time of celebration. But I, I just also ask you, church, to be very prayerful for those who are hurting. There are a lot of people hurting at Christmas. Some people here are going through a Christmas without um, a spouse or a child. And it's just hard. It's just so hard. And, and so, I mean, with someone this week who's experiencing that, and I keep on thinking about an old hymn in my mind that says that the sands of time are sinking. And they are, aren't they? The sands of time, the hourglass, the sands of time are sinking. But the refrain is, but glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. There, there's a hope beyond a broken world. There's hope beyond the grave. Now, just think about the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, all of God's people, all the ages. We believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And that gives us hope. So God, God bless those of you who really are struggling this Christmas. And there are a lot of, a lot of people that do. We're going to continue in John chapter 1, just as a Christmas meditation. Last week we looked at the passage with an incredible statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Boom. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, in Him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then later He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And then in this incredible discussion of the Christ event, verse 6 and follow says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the last two verses of the book of Malachi, talks about a forerunner who would come and usher in the age of Messiah. And it says this, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, so there's going to be 
a prophetic voice that would usher in the day of Messiah King. And John the Baptist was that voice who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was the sent out one. That's interesting in the Bible. Jesus refers to John the Baptist in John chapter 5 as a bright and shining light. It says, John the Baptist was a bright and shining light, and you rejoiced in his light. Then he says this in Luke chapter 7 about John the Baptist, verse 26 and following. It says, among those born of women, there has never been one as great as John the Baptist. Now, I want to know about this guy, this bright and shining light. Among those born of women, up to this time, Christ says, there's never been one greater than John the Baptist. So let me read you a little bit about John the Baptist and his background. In Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, John the Baptist had a daddy named Zechariah, a mama named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was way beyond the age of childbearing. Uh, they were childless. John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah, was on temple duty. He was in the temple preparing the t- for worship, and he had this experience. Luke chapter 1, verse 11. And and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I read these statements and go, oh yeah, yeah. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So see, he says, this is the Elijah to come. Zechariah, your son, John, will be the Elijah who is to come to prepare the way for Messiah King. And and one sign of the coming of Messiah King is he turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. It's a beautiful statement. Let me pick it up. Verse 39 of Luke 1, it says, In those days Mary, who's pregnant with Christ, arose and went in haste to the hill country, to the town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, crying, Blessed! Are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb? And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Well, I read this, and I read that Jesus says, there's never been one greater than John the Baptist. And I read where Jesus cries out, and he says that John was a bright and shining light. And I go, what is it about the Baptist that made him that type of person? And I just want to think out loud with you about that this morning. What is it about John the Baptist? Now, we know that he was a different guy. Let's just be honest. He was just a different type of person. The Bible says he wore garments of leather and he ate locusts and wild honey. So he wasn't a paleo diet guy. You know, he was locusts and wild honey. And he, have, had, he just told it like it was. But what is it that made him so significant? I'm going to mention three things as we think about this on this uh, Christmas season. The forerunner, the sent out one. Three things. Number one is, as I look at the life of John, there was a radical simplicity about his life. The word radical means root, the root, the, the basic root issue. Simplicity means there's no intricacy or complexities. What you see is what you get. John the Baptist was a man of radical simplicity because his heart had been arrested by the greatness and the majesty and the glory of the Messiah who was to come. His, his radical simplicity is shown in his very simple message, John chapter 1, verse 27. He says this. He says, I baptize with water, but one will come after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later in chapter 1, verse 36, he looked up at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold the Lamb of God. He said that to his men, to everybody. So he had a simple message and it was this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and as that rooted in his heart, and as that took over his personality, there was a radical simplicity that freed him up to be the man God had called him to be. There was not this Machiavellian hiddenness, guile, deceit that, 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 that seized his spirit. And as I, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, the reality is when the gospel gets your heart and you see the beauty of Christ, it, it frees you up to live with a radical simplicity. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 12 verses, Peter is just proclaiming the greatness of salvation in Christ. And, and, and then he says in verse 13, therefore, because of the greatness of our salvation in Christ, because Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, because it is a salvation that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, therefore, prepare your man, minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be given you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, he says, heaven is coming. Glory is coming. The sands of time are sinking, but that's not the last word. Death, disease, destruction, not the last word. The kingdom of Christ is the last word. And then he keeps on talking. He says this, 
And since you call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, live with reverence and fear throughout, throughout the time of your exile. This is knowing that you're going to answer to God. The gospel frees you up to play to an audience of one. He says, and I says, I remind you, you were not redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. He goes right back to the gospel. And then he talks about how the word of God will be abiding and strong and true. And then he comes to chapter 2, which is an application. And he says this, so, or therefore, put away all malice and guile. See that? Guile or deceit. Malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander and like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Listen, church, when when the gospel takes root in your heart, it gives you the ability to live with a radical simplicity because there's a message that makes you want to sing. I was thinking about this in 1 John chapter 1 where, where it says this, verse 5, This is the message we have for you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Then he says this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if I say I know Christ and I'm walking with him and I'm walking in unconfessed, unaddressed, unrenounced sin that I love and embrace, I'm a liar. I'm just a liar. And he says this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. In other words, if you walk, as you walk into the light who is Christ, and you deal with your sin and your stuff, and you confess it, and you you run to the cross, there is a cleansing and a power and a radical simplicity that comes into your life. My wife says this frequently. I'll be talking about somebody I admire, some are sitting here today, and she'll laugh and she'll say this. Yes, he is a simple fellow. Hear that? Not simple ton. A simple fellow. What, what she's saying is that there is a, a truth that has gripped his heart that lets him walk in simplicity because there is an overarching theme, radical simplicity. See what I'm saying? See, 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 the shorter catechism, what's the chief end of man? Answer the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question two, what is the only rule we have that will teach us how to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? Answer, the word of God is the only rule of life that teaches us how to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So, So what I'm saying is that whether you're a, a homemaker or an auto mechanic or a physician or an attorney or a teacher or a coach, whatever, that, that there's, there's an overarching theme if you're a believer, and that is your purpose statement, your life purpose statement is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. You don't have to go to a seminar and pay $3,000 to find out your life purpose statement. That's it. You're welcome. But see, and then everything else is lived out underneath that overarching statement. I want to glorify God. I want to enjoy Him forever. I want to represent Him. See, as I think of that, and I think of John being a sent out one, 
And I think about this statement, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who trusted in Jesus. Uh, somebody says, well, what, what's a concern in your heart? A concern on my heart for me is that I would weep more for people without Christ. That, that I would say with, with great fervor, we need to take the gospel to places where it is scarcely heard or never heard. That, that we need to pray for our coworkers, neighbors, family, and friends. And God, God show us, show us the, the simplicity of the gospel, but the power of the gospel and the eternal nature of the gospel. That, that's what I want from me. The second thing about John the Baptist that I, I, I see is, is he was a man of marked humility. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, Scripture says, they ask him, then why are you baptized if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Now, you have to realize this, what it means to say that in the Middle East. If you, if you go, you remember a very famous person was given a press conference a few years ago, and a reporter from Iraq picked up his shoe and threw it at him. Remember that? Uh, do you remember the statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled through the streets of Baghdad, and little children would come up and take off their sandals and hit the statue with their sandal. I remember that picture very well. Uh, that, if you show someone your shoe or the bottom of your foot in that culture, it is the most heinous, malicious statement you can make to someone else. It's the sign of ultimate disrespect. If you, if you go to India today, and, and in India, if you greet... Um, someone that you respect or you hold in high esteem. Of course, you do the namaste thing. And then what they'll do is they'll bend down and just briefly touch, touch the shoe of the person they're greeting, saying, I, I consider it a privilege to touch your foot. See? And so when John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie the latch of his sandal, what he's saying is, He's Messiah. This radical simplicity has led to, to humility. And then later in John chapter 3, he talks about Christ and the bridegroom and the bride. And this is what he says. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's complete. And he says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. A sign of being God's man or God's woman is humility, teachability, approachability. Augustine, who died in 430, was professor of rhetoric, and he was asked, or he said, if you were asking me the three rules of being a great rhetorician, 
It would be pronunciation, pronunciation, pronunciation. He said, now if you ask me the three keys to being a man of God, it would be humility, humility, humility. Now, I'll just say that as I studied John the Baptist's life, humility is born when you have a radical simplicity that's, that's centered on the reality and greatness of Christ, and it transfixes your soul. That's it. The third thing about the Baptist's life is that he was a man of courage. Most of you know how John's life ended. He was a uh, guy who said to a man named Antipas, Antipas had seduced his brother's wife, her name was Herodias, and he, she had divorced him and had married her brother. It's a creepy story. It's really creepy. And it gets creepier. And so Herodias is living with her former brother-in-law, who's now her brother, and John the Baptist comes to see him, and he says, I've just got a little sermon. You're an open sin and adultery, and what you're doing is, a, is an offense to God. And they put him in prison. And Herodias wanted to do him in, but Antipas feared John, because the Bible says that Antipas thought that John was a righteous man and a just man. And then the story one day there was a birthday celebration, lavish party, guests. Herodias had a daughter, the stepdaughter, the niece stepdaughter of Antipas. And Antipas said, will you dance? And she said, her mother conferred with her. It's always good to have counsel from your mama. And she said, her mama said, say you'll dance under one condition and it'll be named later. And she said, I will dance under one condition, and I'll name it later. And he said, you can have anything you want. You can have half the kingdom. And she danced, and after she finished, she said, I just want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Happy birthday. And they cut his head off. He was a man of courage. You know, when I study men like John the Baptist who had a radical simplicity, when I study church history, I believe that these men who understood the gospel and understood the power of God and understood that heaven awaits and that death is not the final word, I think they went to their chopping block saying, God does all things by his appointment for his glory and for my good. And I can't understand that or explain it, but I believe it. I was, I was thinking about this week, uh, December the 31st, is the death date of um, William Tyndale. No, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe died in uh, eight, 1384. And jo John Wycliffe was, uh, this is long before the Reformation, and John Wycliffe wrote a tract saying that indulgences are a blasphemy to God. And John Wycliffe said, uh, trust only in the perfect work of Christ on the cross for you. It's amazing what he said. And, and he said, he was famous for giving the people of England the Bible in English. And he sent out these lawlers, they're called lawlers, they go out and just preach the Gospels and preach the truth of Jesus. And he died. But his pamphlets were translated into the Czech language, and there's a guy, 
a priest named John Huss who read them. And his heart was arrested by the goodness of Christ. And John Huss started preaching the gospel. And, and on July the 6th of 14 and 15, he was condemned to be burned at the stake for preaching the gospel. And as they lit the fires around, or, or the, the tinder around his feet, he said, you may silence my voice today, but within 100 years, someone will arise and you will never be able to silence his voice. And that's just, to me, that's eerie because 102 years later, Martin Luther brought in the Reformation. It's amazing. And then, real quickly, 1538, there was a guy named William Tyndale who just loved the gospel. And he was hounded and he had to flee England. He was living in Belgium. They surrounded where he lived by hook and crook and they kidnapped him, brought him back to England, put him in prison. He refused to quit preaching the gospel and they condemned him to death. And so in 1534, William Tyndale. And I was, William Tyndale, because he was a person of education and a person who had been acclaimed in that culture, in those days in England, they'd break, they would strangle you to death before they burned your body. So I, I guess they, they kept you from suffering too much. I, I don't know. But they strangled him to death. Right before they strangled him, he cried out, Oh, Lord God, open the eyes of the King of England to the gospel of grace. And, uh, these guys had courage. They had courage. And I think it was born of a radical simplicity that was anchored in the gospel of grace and the glory of God that built humility and courage in their lives. I just, I just see that. I see that in John the Baptist. I want that for us. You see, John was sent. The same word is used later in John chapter 20 when Christ, after his resurrection, appears to his disciples and he says, peace be upon you. And he says this, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. If you claim to be a Christ follower, we're sent ones to our neighborhoods, our, our workplace, our friends. We're sent ones. And my, my prayer is that the radical simplicity of Messiah King would grip our hearts as we enter into a new year. And that it would just shine in us and through us the glory of God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for today, and thank you for this incredible passage in John 1 uh, that, that tells us about a man who was a forerunner who was sent. And, and we thank you that we see in John the Baptist a radical simplicity, a humility, and a courage that is the birthright that we have as men and women who know Jesus and who have the Holy Spirit. So make that a reality in our lives, I pray. Uh, show us yourself uh, in power. Uh, Lord, use us. Let us be sent out once. Let us understand that. In our subdivisions, in our families, in our neighborhoods, among our coworkers, Lord, let us be sent out once. And by your grace and for your glory, may it be said of us, Lord Christ, as you said of John the Baptist, that, that we are a bright and shining lamp. Let us be the light of the world to those who know you not. Let us be a light on a, on a hill that can't be hidden. Let our, our, our attitudes and our um, 
just the way we, we, we live, uh, show the world that we know Christ. So blessed be your name. Speak to us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.